0: This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Padre. Our guest this week is a film critic, TV personality, political commentator, film historian, and a much-admired host and presenter on Turner Classic Movies. In 2003, he became the second on-air host. Hired by TCM, following our one time podcast guest, the late, great Robert Osborne. And he's gone on to host numerous film festivals, introduce thousands of movies, and host programs like Hollywood Hideaways, TCM Spotlight, and The Essentials and conduct interviews with screen icons like mel brooks sophia loren martin scorsese jerry lewis warren Beatty, robert redford and tony curtis just to name a few he's also a contributor to the peabody and emmy winning cbs news sunday morning and he's appeared on shows Jeopardy, Party Down, Big Love, and The Simpsons. He also happens to be a member of a very prestigious family. His father, Frank, was a longtime political advisor and a press secretary of Robert F. Kennedy. His great uncle was a multiple Oscar-winning writer-director, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And as dramatized in the new movie, *Mank*, his grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, was a producer of such classic films as Horse Feathers and Duck Soup, and the Oscar-winning screenwriter of dozens of memorable Hollywood movies, including a little picture called Citizen Kane. Starting in 2020, he hosted the terrific TCM film history podcast, The Plot Thickens, about the life and career of filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich. And we hope there's an old new season of that show in the works. Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show a fellow movie obsessive, and a man who agrees with me that Ace in the Hole is the best Billy Wilder movie, then Mankiewicz.
2: Wow, man, there's nothing like getting introduced as a TV personality to make you think that your career <laughs> is basically worthless.
1: <laughs> what about the What about
2: the hey, other? Hey, f- that stuff's great. I got it. What about it. the ju- other five? No, I got it. It's all good. It's all good. I just, whenever I hear TV personality, I'm like,
0: oh, oh. So You're like, ch- you turned into Charo. <laughs>
2: <laughs> By the way, you mentioned that you hope there'll be a season two of The Plot Thinking. So right before I came on, I realized, oh, I got to, I, I texted our producer, uh, Angela Carone. I'm like, hey, Angela, I'm about to go on uh, Gilbert's uh, podcast. So I'm like, oh, my God, it's great. I'm like, yeah. So what can I say about, uh, uh, can I you know talk a little bit about you know what we have in store for season two? And uh, her response, let me see if I can read it clearly here. No. <laughs> no <laughs> <is that? Yeah.
1: laughs> can you tell no. us if it'll follow the same format at least?
2: Yeah, 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 it'll it'll yeah. follow the same format. Um, um, and uh, and it's good and and we have actually uh, two and a half uh, in the pipeline, like ready to go. We have you know the se- second season, the third season, and then we're we're even we may shoot a uh, tape another one. Also, so we got a lot of stuff going on, and it's definitely it's definitely coming, and a lot of work has already been done.
0: And uh, Ben, uh, am I allowed to do away with my first question? Was anybody else in your family in show business? <laughs> yeah, I think you'd leave that one out. Yeah, um,
2: uh, yeah, it's uh, um, you know, I, I came to, uh, I grew up in D.C. because you mentioned my father was in politics, and I, I knew that there was this uh, stuff that we'd had with the Mankiewicz's in in Hollywood, right? I mean, I knew my grandfather wrote Citizen Kane. It didn't really mean anything to me for a long time. And that Joe was a very successful writer director. And my my cousin Tom Mankiewicz, Joe's son. You know, he wrote I think th- officially wrote three Bond movies. Really wrote five. He wrote Superman one and two.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh, directed uh, uh, Dragnet and I think Delirious. Um, created Heart to Heart. So that's
1: right. And, Tom and, Man- Tom Mankiewicz.
2: Um, that's right, Tom Mankiewicz. So the um, very funny, uh, cynical amusingly cynical fellow. But none of that mattered. Like my dad was a big deal. So I came to LA, um, like between my junior and senior years of uh, college for the, I spent the summer with my uh, cousin, John Mankiewicz, who's a writer, a really good writer also. Um, And, uh, and I went to a party with a cousin of mine, whose last name isn't Mankiewicz, but he's a Mankiewicz, Tim Davis. And he introduced me to whoever's throwing the party. And he said, this is my cousin, Ben Mankiewicz. And, 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 and he said, of the Mankiewicz's? And I was like, yeah. And he put his feet together and bowed and said Hollywood royalty. And I was like, I mean, I was like, well, I'm 21. I'm like, I don't know what you're doing, man. I, you know, I, It's like you look over your shoulder expecting that, like, you know, Larry Spielberg was there. Like, I was like, yeah. So it took me a while to get that to a, a small subsection of people out here that that, that name uh, meant a great deal.
0: Now, we, we mentioned already uh, Citizen Kane that your grandfather wrote. And there's arguments back and forth of whether uh, uh you, it was 100% your grandfather and Orson Welles never lifted a pen <laughs> or uh, a collaboration.
2: I, I think, you know, I I swing back and look. Like, I want to defend my grandfather, and I think that—, that- that because he wrote, it was his idea, and and he wrote that giant, monstrous first draft, which, you know, David Fincher will tell you, just mm-hmm. directed Mank, was everything that's in the movie is in there, just about, right? But, like, part of writing is taking a 300-page pa- uh, uh, screenplay and turning it into a manageable uh, screenplay, and that was really mostly Wells. So, you know, I I think you can... I, I, they obviously, there was obviously there was a collaboration, but uh, the correct name is first in the credits. Um, but I always thought it was weird because I think the Wells people, like your like our season one uh, subject on the plot thing, it's Peter Bogdanovich who's been on who's been a guest on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, that he said, uh, that, that they all that Pauline Kale article said suggested that it like it minimized Wells and. And it didn't just minimize him in the screenplay. It suggested that, hey, man, like Greg Tolan shooting it and, and Herman's screenplay, like, Wells just sort of filled in the blank. Like, that's Orson Wells's movie. And I think that once you establish that with a Wells defender, then they're much more open to hearing that, that maybe Herman deserves more of the credit for the screenplay. But anyway, a, he was very proud of it, Herman was. And he, uh, you know, he was a really talented writer, and he never believed that writing movies was worthwhile. It was a shame to what he did, and that's really the the first time he wrote something that he was proud of
1: so so what we see in Mank where in the third act he he has a change of heart from the agreement that he'd made with Wells and decides, I've written something really good here and I think I do want to have my name on it. That's consistent with with what you know to be the
2: truth. Yeah, I don't know the actual sequence of events or that, but mm-hmm. yeah, clearly that was he agreed not to take credit and then he was like, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> You know, and 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 he didn't care about you know, and there was all that self sabotage that taking credit might destroy your career, and that of course made him want to take credit uh, even more. He was always destroying his career, full of full of self loathing and self sabotage, while being you know, as you see in the movie, you know, very well mm-hmm. liked.
0: Mm-hmm. And and did he and Orson Welles ever speak to each other again after that?
2: I don't think so, or 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 not uh, really, uh, and maybe they would have. Uh, You know, I think that uh, Herman probably would have enjoyed Orson's downfall, (laughs) right? And that would have made him... Interesting. I think think that would have made him compassionate uh, toward him, Um, you know, because once Wells stops being the arrogant boy wonder and sort of has sort of blow after Hollywood blow dealt to him, he becomes a more uh, sympathetic figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and Herman liked to clearly like to switch it up on you like if you expected him to do one thing he liked doing something else the one thing the movie I don't want to say got wrong because it you know Fincher can do whatever the hell he wants it's his movie and it was wonderful that he made it I think and but like Herman was uh po- Herman was against isms I mean Herman would argue for progressivism like he did in the movie right politically if he were with a bunch of who he would consider fascists, like you know Louis B. Mayer and William yeah. Randolph Hearst, yeah. but but if he were in an argument with a bunch of progressives or even communists who were saying like this is crazy, you know we got to dis- we got to dismantle corporate control of America, Herman would have said those are the people who give your guys jobs. What are you insane? You'll ruin the country. He just he argued with whoever was talking.
1: So he was hard to pin down politically. He was never he was never one thing.
2: No, 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 not, yeah. not at all. Yeah. No, he was certain, and he was a very, I mean, what he uh, he was a strong anti-communist. That's uh, that's for yeah. sure. But he was also, you know, progressive in his uh, ideas. But uh, yeah, he liked uh, uh, he liked arguing. He was good <laughs> at it.
1: What did, What did the family think, Ben, when 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 you first found out that a twenty five million dollars studio picture? Being made by an A-list director in black and white about your grandfather, and and, and how early in the process were you informed? <laughs>
2: uh, I was. I mean, I was like, I was never informed. I mean, <laughs> nobody was informed. Um, uh, I mean, I, that was great. I couldn't believe it. I didn't believe it until I saw it. Until Fincher, he had a. You know, I was doing a piece for CBS Sunday Morning, and he screened it for just me and my wife in the, the their studio that they own part oh, of. Oh, that's cool. In Hollywood, and. He wanted me to see it on the big screen. And, I mean, the until it like comes up, the title card comes up, Mank. And, I mean, I just, I mean, I started to cry. You're just wow. like, I, I can't believe this exists. So, yeah, I mean, people ask me what I think of it. I thought it was awesome. It was about my grandfather. It was called Mank. They say Mank 135 ah. times in the movie. What do you think? <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> and
0: was you have about,
1: a
2: little cameo in it, too. Yeah, the, it, yeah, that's right. That was nice. Toward the uh, end. Nice adventure, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: What, oh, what, and, what, and go ahead. and just Jill. so uh, we we already know the answer to this, and we've uh, talked about it on this show, but from a Mankowitz, I we want you to say it. Uh, what does uh, rosebud in Citizen Kane mean?
2: Well, I think you know. I mean, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, it means the you know it's the it's the lost childhood. it's what you don't have. It's the love of your mom, right? um uh you know surrendered um and what you're chasing your whole life but my grandfather had a bicycle uh, that may have been a rosebud branded bicycle the name is but then again I might be making that story up I can't tell what I read and what's but anyway he had a bicycle that I think was called rosebud and he loved it it gave him freedom growing up wilkes bear. Pennsylvania, this has got to be like 1909, 1910, right around there. He's 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And he gets his bicycle that he'd always wanted. And he goes to the library, um, you know, to read the way those rebel kids do. And uh, whatever, he didn't lock his bike. Who locked their bikes in 1910? I say, like, I know what happened in 1910. His his bike got stolen and his parents were furious, or at least his dad was, who's the kind of person who got furious a lot. And and they didn't replace it and they blamed him for it. (laughs) I mean, I love it. What parent today would be like, my kid went to the library. It's great. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, there was a, that was a, you know, not as profound, but that was a, you know, a loss of freedom. And, and that was the trigger to, uh, to, because the story about the bicycle is true. I don't know whether the name...
1: I Rose think Bud that I it. think Bad Boy Gilbert was trying to lead you down a different road there, Ben. He was trying to <laughs> what the, the what what Rosebud oh, yeah, was right. uh, well, the inside joke of what Rosebud Thank was. doing. Right. Yeah, I don't yeah. know whether that that's true,
2: right? Mary, right, uh, right. Uh, Marion Davies's yes, love well, the part. Yes, 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 that's sir. right. Um, yes, and uh, I, I, that may well. Uh, I'd like to think William Randolph first had a lovely nickname for that. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, my my uh, my story was slightly less illicit. I, I yes. I mean, still good. A little well, still, boy and a library. Still, still pretty good. good. It's pretty good. Still,
1: still good. Yeah. I, I think it's sweet that you got emotional, and and I'm sorry that your dad wasn't around to to oh. actually see it and experience it.
2: That was a big part of what I, why I got emotional. That my yeah. my dad would have loved it because to, to I didn't know my grandfather, but that is what you see in Mank, the way Gary Oldman played him, the way Fincher directed it. That was uh, that's how my dad described his grandfather, his father, hundred percent.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Tell, tell us, too, and Gilbert found this fascinating, we were talking the other night, uh, doing doing the research on your dad's childhood, and your dad was suitably unimpressed by the fact that that all of these people were in his home as a child, including Harpo Marx, who we read came to Passover Seders?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. Um, my dad grew up in a kosher home. Herman didn't care, but his mom, my grandmother did, ma. Um yeah, Harpo Marx was there all the time. Always uh, playing cards, gambling um, Love with that. Uh, with Herman. Uh but you know, all I mean, you know, the uh, uh you know, I mean Gerald and George Thurber. Kuport, yeah, James yeah. Thurber, you know. Amazing. A, and never no movie talk, right? All all politics, all literature, theater. Um it,
0: It's funny. I I still I mean I know he was a person. But I still can't conceive of Harpo actually speaking. Yeah, I
1: know totally, and
0: not yeah. not honking a horn or anything. <laughs> like I
1: don't that. think he brought the horn to Seder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: when he uh, when he wanted another card in blackjack instead of saying "hit me," he would honk the horn. That's how. Uh, <laughs> that's, how that's how Harpo played. Yeah, but
1: I, I want to talk about your pop for a minute too, and, and and kind of put the the puzzle pieces together because your your dad's uh, is it fair enough to use the word disdain for show business? Or, or or he just he was just unimpressed.
2: Yeah, he was unimpressed because he grew up and his dad was unimpressed. You know, Herman was Mm -hmm. unimpressed, and uh, Mm -hmm. and they just talked about important stuff, man. It was a very, you know, my dad was the smartest person in any room that anybody was in, right? Like he was always the smartest person, even in rooms filled with really smart people. So, but he was an entertainment lawyer for a bit. He like repped uh, Steve. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, Yeah. Steve McQueen, James Mason, James Mason, (laughs) Jay Silverheels. My brother said Jay Silverheels tonto shows up at the house wow, Gil. In, in, in costume <laughs> you know. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Um and uh but he just thought, you know, he, he didn't that didn't uh move the needle uh, for him. My dad would have been a great screenwriter too. Um and he uh you know, and then like John J- J.F.K. was elected and there was this calling, a new frontier, and he literally just called. He knew somebody in McNamara's office, the of Secretary of Defense. He called He was like, "Hey, I'm uh, my name is Frank Bankowitz. I'm, you know, whatever he was then, 36 years old. I'm a lawyer. I want to serve. What do I do? Where do I go? And that led to uh, being Latin American director of the Peace Corps eventually. So uh, and that that took him into politics. He met Bobby Kennedy and that that set the stage for that, the life that my dad ended up leading.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, growing up or y- you, uh, was your house filled with like uh, legendary names
2: yeah. I mean, we'd have dinner parties and like, I I remember taking Barbara Walters coat, you know, like that was, that was, um, and you know, I mean, like, you know, my daddy ran George McGovern's campaign and he, you know, and Bobby Kennedy was murdered when I was one, but you know, he, he'd, he'd been over. And, and then we the first football game I went to at RFK stadium in Washington. I sat in the Kennedy's box, you know, I, I believe me, I had no appreciation at all for that. That was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, cool so thing. there were, there were political people and media people, uh, coming over uh, all the time, you know, um, you know, the, uh, the, my dad played softball every Sunday f- when he was president of national public radio, um, for about six years and he played for the NPR team, which was managed by Bob Edwards. And I went to every game and I watched and I'd keep score. Um, uh, like I didn't think it was a big deal that Bob Edwards was the manager of the team turned out Bob Edwards was a big deal. <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, and he hired you know my dad all these women who are now you know he promoted and at NPR you know uh, Anita totenberg and 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 Cokie Roberts and uh,
1: yeah he had a big impact on NPR yeah
2: he did a huge yeah. impact on NPR he started I, morning edition
1: I have to ask you uh, it, it's it's an unco- uh, uncomfortable but you can still see the YouTube video uh, of your dad making that announcement first of all he was he was in the ambassador hotel helping Ethel Kennedy down from the stage and what what did you say about 30 forty feet behind?
2: That's what he said, yeah. Uh, when, he, the,
1: when the shots rang out.
2: Yeah, yeah. So Bobby says, long to Chicago, that's when they're in the Ambassador Hotel in Washington when Bobby Kennedy wins the 1968 Democratic uh, uh, California primary, um, giving him a big boost heading into the convention. He's probably, no guarantee, but I think he's going to be the nominee. And uh, Oh, I think so. And he, um, and then probably the president. Um, and then, so uh, uh, they all rush off with Bobby through this back way that they're going to go through the kitchen. And um, and Ethel was like 110 months pregnant, and, and she says, she's on the stage, and she says, that's okay, boys, go ahead. I'll just get off the stage myself. And so uh, Rosie Greer, uh, who was helping out Bobby with security and very active uh, politically then, and uh, uh, as were some other uh, prominent athletes, uh, uh, my dad and, 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 and Rosie Greer went to help her off the stage, and so they were behind with Ethel uh, when the shots, uh, when the shots rang out and the YouTube video you're referring to is my dad announcing. Yeah. Um, sorry, I live near the Santa Monica airport, so you get some planes here, but, uh, that's okay. The YouTube video you're referring to is, um, is my dad making the announcement, um, uh, that Bobby on June 6th in the morning that, that Bobby Kennedy had been, uh, had been, uh, had died, um, after about 36 hours or so after being shot. And, you know, my dad was always so tough and strong. And, and as he walks off this sort of makeshift stage, they have us go down a couple steps. Somebody reaches over. He told me who it was and holds his arm as a brace. You know, I had never seen my dad need anybody to wow. help him like that. So that's what gets me about that. Um, it,
1: it's, it's even hard to look at today. I mean, he looks ashen, and he looks like a man who's been up for—which th- I'm sure he was. A man who had been out without sleep for for, for for a number of hours—
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course he hadn't gone to sleep uh, since the the, the night, before, since two nights before. And, uh, he said what kept him going through all that, you know, the campaigns were small then. Like he, Bobby was one of his, you know, three or four closest friends. There weren't, there were like six guys on the campaign. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but there weren't. So dad said what, you know, like what kept him going was the fact that he had to set up a press room immediately at the ambassador hotel to handle. Mm -hmm. So like he had to get phones installed and, you know, set, get chairs set up for everybody. And he had like, you know, two assistants, volunteers to help him do all that. And so it was just constant talking to press, keeping things going that, that, uh, um, the thing that gets me about that is that moment where he, my dad's announcing who was with him. And he says, you know, uh, his sister-in-law, Mrs. John F. Kennedy. And you're like, Oh, I know, man, that family, that moment, that's, you know, that she's there with him. It's just five years later, less than five years. Amazing,
1: anyway. Of course, and he was working in, two, in both administrations, and I mean, and, and, I mean, lived through obviously, bo- bo- saw both of his employers gunned down.
2: Yeah, my dad told the one when he, when he was in Peru when uh, in the Peace Corps when when JFK was was killed, and he uh, he was in some meeting, and he came out into the street afterwards at the end of the meeting, goes down the elevator stairs, whatever, comes out in the street to go to his car. And he said people are walking around the streets in Lima, the street he was on. And, and like, just you can tell instantly something's going on. People are, like, walking around. They look like a state of shock, right? People are whispering and get, people are just staring. And my dad asks somebody, you know, ¿qué pasó? What's happened? Um, and the guy says, you know, el presidente murió, you know, whatever, however you say that correctly in Spanish. President died. And my dad says, oh, lo siento, I'm so sorry. And, uh, and the guy says, no, you're president. Which is Wow. Uh, another idea of, of how big a deal JFK of, was in of in Latin America yeah
1: and he visited the grave every year your dad didn't he
2: bobby's yeah oh. yeah
1: yeah yeah bobby's yeah yeah yeah, yeah That's sweet Raw flowers That's, yeah it's sweet and it's and it's interesting to see that that he never became disillusioned uh w- w- you know in 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 light of everything <laughs> these two earth-shattering events that, oh, was, that my, must have affected him so directly and oh, deeply. Oh, totally, yeah.
2: I mean, and his his sister was killed in uh, California. Sister, great writer, uh, jo- Josie Mankiewicz, my daughter's name for her, um, and uh, uh, killed in a cab accident. Two cabs oh. hit each other. She was standing on the corner with my cousin. I didn't know um, that. I'm and sorry. Uh, yeah, and they were incredibly close. She was 16 years younger. So, I mean, yeah, my dad, the, the violence really uh, did shape him. But no, he was always really... Optimistic. It wouldn't matter. I mean, you could see like a poll that would show, you know, Reagan leading Mondale 57 to 40. And dad would be like, you know, he, he's down to fifty-seven and Mondale's in the forties. I sense this is turning around. You
1: know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, you have to was, love him for that. <laughs> yeah, he was always
2: he, he was always he was wrong a lot. He was really smart, but he 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 did. He always thought the best of this country. He really did. He was always these that 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 he didn't live through the Trump era as a, a comforting. Yeah, to be my brother in some ways. Yeah, because yeah. that would have blown his mind.
0: Tell tell us about Mad Dog of Europe. Oh
2: yeah, Mad Dog of Europe. That's yeah, that's, that's
1: fascinating. So
2: in 1933, this is how smart and on it my grandfather was. In 1933, that's the year Hitler came to power, right? Um, in Germany, he he wrote a screenplay called Mad Dog of Europe. Um, it's hard to know whether it was about Hitler. The the, the 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 young fascist in its name is Adolf Mittler. I love so, that. It yeah. wasn't
1: exactly <laughs> oblique.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean uh, they didn't even go with like Heinrich Mittler. He's like, no, Adolf no. Mittler. That's good. I I got it. That's enough. I changed H to M. I'm not going any farther. That's it. Um uh and uh uh and then the studios wouldn't, you know, he, they tried for a long time to get the movie made and there were people would be interested in it and it got passed down, but I mean, year after year after year went by into the forties when there was still some interest in, uh, in making it. But you see the letters from the the production code office from Joe Breen. And, um, they were, they were terrified of, you know, offending, uh, German Americans. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Ho- Hollywood, you know, did not, <laughs> did not take a tough stand, uh, on fascism for forever. I mean the you know the
1: oh yeah, money well,
2: dictated everything and I, I I get that to some extent but anyway, they, the movie never got made, but it's a fun uh, it's a fun uh, screenplay to read
0: and and uh this was like um they they felt like they were making so much money out of Germany.
1: I think yeah. that was part of it. part yeah, of it yeah. was the German market. part of it was Ben says offending German Americans.
0: Yeah, it's both.
2: I, I you're right, Gilbert. I should mention that also it was just getting. They didn't want to piss uh, these guys off because you know they wanted the movies. Every studio wanted their movies to play in Germany, right? Um, and uh, you know, as it and the, the but the great thing was is that you know, and it's in my grandfather's at New York Times obit, is that he was uh, his movies were banned. Um, Oh, yeah. Joseph, yeah. Joseph Goebbels uh, ban, banned all Herman Mankiewicz movies in Germany. I mean, I think they ended up banning just about every movie, but they specifically early on because of Mad Dog Europe banned Herman Mankiewicz movies. And, and my dad was on Nixon's enemies list, White House enemies list. So it's like pretty good. Like yeah. you, get, you get you get you get one guy on Hitler's enemies list and another guy on Nixon's enemies list and not uh, two badges uh, not, of honor. Two badges of honor, obviously one a lot worse than the other, but still both uh, both that's pretty proud. Those are good
0: enemies. And I heard they used to like have send them movies, the American films, to Germany, and Germany would give them notes.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. I yeah, say, yeah. Like,
0: oh, this is sounds like a little too anti-Nazi and stuff like that. I've I, I no.
2: I mean, the, the you read the the I I read the the to help my dad out with his book, uh, which is worth reading, uh, for anybody who can find a copy now. So as I was yeah, saying,
1: yeah, well, tell, well pl- plug it, people can find yeah, it on Amazon. So, yeah. His
2: memoir is called, so as I was saying, and it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's about growing up in Hollywood and politics and all this sort of great stories. My dad's sort of at the center of a lot of things that went on during his life from the sixties into the, to the end of the century. And, um, uh, and uh, so I helped him and, and, and read a bunch of the exchanges about Mad Dog Europe. And you can see what, what you were talking about, Gilbert, the, this notion that, that the production code office, they were just essentially terrified the entire time, right? Like, oh, we can't do this because Lord knows how heinous, how terrible it would be if God forbid we, we offended some people, right? If we got to, except for people who were already have offended and we don't care, we can offend them forever. Like, we don't care. We can offend black people. That doesn't concern us, right? But 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 these guys in Germany, uh, who might keep us from marketing our movie there, we cannot offend them, uh, and that was a consistent theme. Just comes up again and again and yeah. again.
1: it turns up in Mank, Actually, there's that scene where they're in Hearst Castle and uh, and they're talking about Hitler. When they have Chaplin sitting at the piano, and I think it's LB May- uh, LB Mayer's character says, "We're not going to alienate that market. We're not yeah, going to right. we're not going to lose a market as big as Germany." It's yeah. fascinating. It's yeah. fascinating. You talk about Hollywood kind of coddling fascism. I mean, Gilbert, this is a favorite movie of yours, The Mortal Storm in forty. But really, that's kind of the first full blown yeah. anti fascist movie to come out of a Hollywood studio. And and that's seven years after Herman is writing his screenplay.
2: Yeah, that's right. Mortal Storm yeah. was, was the was the yeah. first time. Took till nineteen forty.
1: Yeah. Took seven long it- years. And yeah. even then, they, G- the words,
2: Jimmy, you, won't, oh. you won't hear the words Germany spoken in the in the Mortal Storm, but I got it. Everybody knows.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know what's uh, funny to me about when they finally did start handling the Nazis in movies, uh, they never used the word Jew. You wouldn't right. know that there was any connection of Nazis and Jews.
2: Yeah, um, you know, uh, again, right? This is not, and I mean, and. And so many of these guys making these decisions were Jewish, right? Yeah, they didn't they did not. Uh, it was not. I mean, not Breen and not the guys in sure. the Production Code Office, right? They were. They were. They were. Production Code Office set up to avoid government control, government uh, 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 censorship of the movies, right? But really, they they feared the, you know, the Catholic Legion of Decency. That was the that was the powerful arm that they were kowtowing to, uh, in the in 1934 when the production code office, which I guess was started in 1930, but in 1934 is when it started. Yeah. You know, it was really in reaction to the Fatty Arbuckle trial in 1921 or 22 or his, you know. Um, and that's, a, by the way, a movie that really needs to be made because that's an outrage, that, that first trial of the century. I mean, you know. They, they,
1: yeah. Uh, but, There's no know. good Arbuckle movie. There's a bad one with James Coco and Raquel Welch called The Wild Party. Which yeah. is loosely based on Arbuckle.
2: But there needs to be a real, real big studio um, Yeah, movie, uh, that, yeah. Uh,
0: Every year, it seems like if there's a fat comedian uh, who's in the who's uh, getting a lot of uh, attention, they'll they'll announce like he's working on a Fatty Arbuckle movie, but it never takes place. Yeah, I, yeah.
2: You'd be good. You'd be a good Fatty Arbuckle. He'd be
0: great. Right. He'd <laughs> <laughs> be great. Just let's just, yeah. re-ima- or
1: just
2: reimagine it. Right? You'd be great, kind Gilbert. Kind of guy. yeah.
1: It was <laughs> nice to see Thalberg portrayed in uh, I mean, Mayer, of course, always comes off as a rat bastard, but but Thalberg uh, does not escape, uh, he does not come off terribly well in the Mank movie. And I, I, you know, I I thought his greatest crime was, was kind of ruining the Marx brothers, but uh, he doesn't uh, he doesn't come off well in the film,
2: no, he it, doesn't, but he doesn't come off that badly, I don't think. I mean, as he was doing his job to me, right, you know, and uh. Um, i suppose i and, suppose and, and 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 that stuff all, all that stuff about the nineteen thirty four gubernatorial campaign you know that, that that really you know that wasn't that that was not part of herman's life was no, no, that was no that
1: was't that was an interesting choice on the part of the filmmakers yeah that, that that they 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 used that as a catalyst
2: right they used that to 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 suggest that politics mattered to herman, and it did a great deal, but Joe Mankiewicz actually recorded or directed i think. Or produced, I guess he would have back then. He would have been just he. He produced some of those segments, but uh, on the wrong side.
1: Right, right. So uh,
2: you know they, they that part they didn't. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, um. Yeah, no, he didn't. No, look, man. You know you want to, but Thalberg was a genius. I mean, Thalberg knew how to can't, make can't movies. Take, that can't yeah. take that away from him. Yeah, and 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 Louis B. Mayer and I, you know, I. I, I you know, I'm I'm friendly with Alicia Mayer, his granddaughter, and uh, you know I think we need we may need some distance before she's ready to embrace the <laughs> embrace <laughs> the after, after this movie. Yeah.
1: Well, what was the In- screening like that you had at at Hearst Castle?
2: Oh man, it was great. So it was oh at uh, Hearst Castle uh, the screen, Citizen Cid- Kane screen- The Citizen
1: Kane screening. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I, the, I I hosted it for the for the San Luis Obispo um, film festival. Uh, which I've done some stuff for in most years that there has been one, and uh, and one of their big events was screening Citizen Kane in Hearst Castle. It had never been screened in the that's, in the
1: that's amazing
2: in Hearst's actual screening room. We'd done it a year before, a couple of years before at like the the theater in the in the you know the in the gift stop shop. I mean, it's a real mm-hmm. theater, but I mean, but that's built later. Not that was not part of Hearst's empire. Um, and it was cool. It was just really neat to 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 screen it there. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, but, uh, you know, and they were given a tour and the, the, the docents, that's how you say that word, right? I was, yeah.
1: It, docent. Right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Those, they were given the tour and they're like, really? Like they don't get any of the things that made Hearst crazy. Like they think. And, like, in this, you know, in the ceiling, he brought in from Italy, you know, piece by piece. And it cost $11 billion. But it was his commitment to excellence, right? And this, you know, he, you know, it was taken as <laughs> they killed a white tiger in Kenya. And you're like, you know, he sounds crazy, right? Right? And you guys, no, they think, no, no, this is awesome. Right. But anyway, it was really, it was, a lot, the Hearst, they were great to, uh, to, to let us in there. And it was uh It was cool. It
0: was just—it was a blast to do it. It was cool. Time heals all wounds, doesn't it? We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. You know, getting back to to Thalberg, it's like I always thought. As much as people consider it a classic, I always thought to me, "Night at the Opera" was just the beginning of the end. And going back to Herman. I thought that their two greatest films were Horse Feathers and Duck Soup because those were completely insane.
1: What do you what do you know, Ben, about about his his experiences with the Marxists? I mean, in, they, the, in those Paramount days. I
2: mean, he hated him. I mean, he loved him, but he, <laughs> but he, but he hated I, him. I, I <laughs>
1: tried to find Groucho, and I went through all my Groucho books trying to find one flattering thing that he had to say about Herman, and I couldn't find one. Yeah, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I mean, although the, Nat Perrin, a longtime Marx Brothers uh, uh, writer, is interviewed in, in, the, in the Marx Brothers scrapbook, and he says Groucho's out of his mind. Herman Mankiewicz was a genius.
2: Yeah, I, I think that that's. Uh, I mean, the you know he he. Herman loved, he did like creative people, and he he liked, you know, that's why he brought out all these other great writers, right? I mean, you Ben Hecht out there, and Charlie Yeah, or, sure. And, uh, so, with that great telegram, which is, that's true, that was in the movie, the Te-
1: Tell Gilbert the telegram, I don't think he knows, because so it's great.
2: So, Herman comes out, he's writing title cards for Silence, right? And, uh... Uh, you know, he'd been a theater critic and a, and a foreign correspondent, and a European. He was in Berlin for a while for, I think, the Chicago Tribune, and he'd been a theater critic. He was a failed playwright. All of that, he thought, was distinguished. You could write great American novel. If you wrote plays, that was good. Even a theater critic, it was good. But making movies, this popcorn nonsense for the masses, that's a shameful way to make a living. That was Herman's crazy way of thinking. So, um, uh, but... It was, he made, he, he was good at it, right? And uh, so he, he's out here, it's like 1928, 29, and he's writing title cards for Silence, 27, 28, and he writes Ben Hecht back in New York. You know, a great writer, uh, uh, you know, wrote the front page. And, and he said, um, uh, get out, uh, uh, paraphrasing, but only the first part. I got that last part by heart. You know, uh, get out here as soon as you can. Uh, there's millions to be made. Everyone else is an idiot don't let this get around It's <laughs>
3: just so. <laughs> so
0: great yeah.
2: it's so great yeah um and uh i found in my stuff i have ben hecht's letter to my grandmother after herman died in 1953 and uh uh man ben hecht could write like that is a letter about what a profound I'll, loss it I'll was. i'll bet and, yeah, i'll bet um it was good it was cool to read i just found that like a like a month ago
1: there's a great scene in Mank where, where you which, you, which you're, uh, you're referring to, where all the writers, where you see all of these people, where Hecht and MacArthur and and Ben Perelman and, you know, they all show up.
2: Yeah, they all show up. I, don't, I think he only sent the that telegram to Hecht. To Hect. The movie. The movie. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he certainly sent it to Hecht, and maybe he sent it to others too.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's funny because we were talking about The Mortal Storm, which is a great movie, and handling. Uh, You know, before we got into the war, but I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Three Stooges had a short, and that was, if I'm not mistaken, before we entered the war, and that was uh, you Nazi spy. You what was it? You Nazi spy. (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you, uh, you can get away
2: with a lot more in a comedy, right? And I don't, you know, so. And I wonder what, how diligent the 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 production code office was. The censors were about like shorts, right? Were they really looking at every short, right? You know? <laughs> I'm
1: sure not. Well, then, uh, let's 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 credit Duck Soup, which is made in '34, a '33 released in '34, for for being an anti-fascist comedy. Yep,
2: yeah, that's right. No
1: Chaplin doesn't make The Great Dictator for another six years.
2: Yeah, not till uh, not till so, 1940. 1940 is when the well broke. Yeah, had, all they had to do was invade, like, six European countries. And then, <laughs> now, you know what? You've gone too far. You know, this is too
0: much. It's too well, much. Now we're you, putting our foot down. <laughs> well, you know,
1: you, you're you a film historian. You know about how Roach uh, embracing Mussolini. You know about all this stuff. I mean, this uh, was good. that This was going on for a long time.
2: Yeah, you know, that's what's crazy. When Appeasement. You hear, like, a liberal, liberal Hollywood, man. I mean, these guys, the, the money... In Hollywood, right? Of course. The money that makes decisions. I mean, it's like money anywhere else, right? It's corporate and it's conservative. That's that's what money is in this country almost always, and what it's always been. And it, um, it protects so, those yeah, interests. True then, and it uh, and it yeah. is uh, and it's true now.
1: I think oh, we cut you he... short before. Were you going to say something about about Grandpa and the Marxes?
2: Oh no, I, I I don't remember. No, I don't know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But no, but I
2: mean, there's that, he has that great line about the Marx brothers about you know it's a you know, it's like trial by error with your pants on fire and you'll hate it. He was talking to S.J. Perlman, like, don't get excited about this job. It sucks. Um, uh, and uh, you'll hate them. <laughs> but, Grouch- uh,
1: <laughs> Groucho but, but, just says, on, Groucho says in the Marx Brothers scrapbook that he was just bombed all the time and he would and he would he would have like a three hour lunch.
2: Yeah, that sounds that- right. That sounds right, yeah. Um,
1: but his name is on their best
2: pictures. His name is on their best pictures. And and, and they were at their, whatever that process was, right? Yep, I mean, it yep. worked. Like, he got the best out of these enormously talented people. Uh, he helped bring out their best, you know? I mean, he, I don't think, you know, it was always described to me that he wrote, you know, and, and he was really a writer. He was, he was a writer. I mean, he's credited yeah. as a producer. But really, it was, you know, getting them to, hey, would this be funny? Would this be funny? And then they're going to do Groucho's gonna lead them, whichever way Groucho thinks to uh, lead them, and he obviously, you know, Groucho knew what he was doing. But uh, yeah, he he didn't love it. But yeah, three hour three hour lunches. Uh, you know, I mean, he was drunk. He was drunk most days, no question. And when he and gambling, and you know, uh, thankfully he didn't give me the drinking. He gave me the gambling. He did not give me the drinking. <laughs>
1: Even though you 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 shed a tear at the beginning of the film and that's sweet and I, I certainly understand why. Did you find yourself sitting there in the screening room thinking, seeing things on the screen unfold and say, "Well, that couldn't have happened." Well, that I, and I know it's Fincher's uh, artistic license.
2: I, I didn't. I just it didn't it didn't you just, affect me you... that way. I mean, I get curious. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the character uh, Jamie Sheridan, I think, is the actor. Um, that character is made up. And so, is that the guy who uh, commits suicide? Oh
1: yes, movie, yes. Uh, who
2: directed the 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 propaganda? The,
1: the anti-Sinclair film, right? The anti-Upton yeah.
2: Sinclair film. So right. that character was a composite and, and, and made. So I, and I didn't know that then. I was like, boy, here's an interesting character that I didn't know about, right? And then yeah. afterwards, I'm like, oh wait, that probably didn't happen. And then sure enough, it, right. it didn't. But I, you know, again, they, they, there's no question that Fincher. That's Herman Mankiewicz. He, he gave you a sense of what it's like to be a, a self-loathing Hollywood writer who hates everything he's done, um, and hates himself for doing it, and hates himself for taking the money, which is why he gambles it away and never cares. Like he did yeah. not care about yeah. money. Neither did my father. Um, and uh, I mean, we are the, my my brother and I, Josh Mankiewicz, he's a correspondent for Dateline NBC, and when the movie sure. we, did, we did so much press for this movie, like we kept you know be like, hey man, we didn't make it. Like, we, we had nothing to do with it, but, like, you know. Um, but, and somebody, I think a guy from USA Today is like, what's the biggest misconception about the Mankiewiczs? And my brother answered like that, he goes, the, that we're rich. And uh, and that's true. I mean, Herman is the guy who, I mean, Joe, I think, had money. Uh, but, you know, whatever. We didn't see it, right? You mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and Tom may have had money, but my dad's line, I mean, you know. I mean he you know, he was NPR, he worked in politics, you know, he wrote books. Public yeah, service. Worked, yeah, yeah. Public yeah. I mean when he hit yeah. sixty, he got a job in PR and in, in the last twenty five years of his life, he definitely made more money than uh than he had before. And but that's when he, you know, and then he left my mom and married somebody else. So again, <laughs> the uh we're still waiting for that first dollar of inheritance. I'm sure it's coming <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Um But still- they know that was it. I love that they didn't care. You know, they right. just didn't it just didn't You know, my dad, like, tried to buy a car, and he was literally like, well, I wanted to get good gas mileage, not because that saves money, because I don't want to go to the gas station. Like, that's a pain in the ass, so let's delay that as much as possible. So he bought, my dad bought, like, the first Hyundai, and he was a terrible driver. He'd been in World War II. He'd driven a Jeep, and that's really where he learned to drive. And he just kept running into things, slowly, you know, (laughs) and... Uh, but like the bumper on that car fell off again and again and again. Cause it was like the first Hyundai and it was made of like paper mache and it would kick, <laughs> and he'd lift, fall down and he'd like kick it back up. And he went, Hmm. Okay. It'll stay. I don't drive much anyway. So
1: yeah. I uh, wonder, I wonder, I wonder if your dad had the soul of an artist. It sounds like he did. He yeah, came, think, he came I, from I creative so. people and, and didn't care about money and. Yeah. You know, you know, Mank, Mank will go down in history as an odd animal. It's because it, it was written by Fincher's dad, so it's a it's a family project about your fa- and a love letter to your family.
2: <laughs> well, I, I did the interview with Fincher. I kept trying to get that point across. Like, you know, come on, this is your dad. Like, your dad started this, and yeah, your dad, your dad wanted to get this movie made. Would have loved to see it made, but he died before this could happen. This must, you know, it must. You must be feeling nostalgic about it, and you're writing about my grandfather. And Fincher is not a sentimental guy, right? Which is part of the what, reason I like him, right? He, he, he So you're looking for that soundbite where he's like, you know, this connection. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, I'd be great if my dad had been around to see this. He, he'd have been proud of it. But I, I, I don't know. I didn't make it for my dad. I just thought it'd be a good story. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, he was not. He was not. I mean, he was super proud of his dad. He's very pleased that you know he gave his dad the sole writing credit on it. Yeah. Him, even though I yeah. think Fincher you know, reworked that screenplay a lot with uh, Eric Roth. But, uh, um, you know, anyway, uh, I I, I like that uh, about Fincher. My dad was not sentimental either. That's why he sold the, you know, he had the Oscar for Citizen Kane and he sold it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because eventually he got, it was expensive to insure, so he put it in a safe deposit box. And then he was like, if it's in a safe deposit box, what's the point? Right. So, um, well, he had a point yeah and and his he somebody in the family needed money and he sold it and he gave a bunch of that money to them yeah i don't it just didn't he was bummed out he didn't get more money this he sold herman's screenplay which had herman's notes on it for kane and that got a lot of money and spielberg bought it he sold that with his brother don mackowitz and uh um and then so he, then a couple years later they sold the dad had the dad owned the the, the oscar and he thought well, this will be great. You can still sell those Oscars. So it was so heavy. But we don't even know who bought it. You know, some yet's bought it and got this a great fascinating. Deal it. And Fascinating. Uh, yeah. So.
1: Tell us a little bit about your TCM. You have a funny story about your TCM audition. And then we just want to ask you a couple of things about uh, our old friend, Robert.
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Um,
1: and you you delivered a very nice eulogy to him, which people can see online at the, uh, I guess it was the Motion Picture Academy.
2: Um, well, I barely remember that. I didn't know that yeah. was online.
1: Oh, it um, is. It's very sweet.
2: Well, I'm glad. I didn't know I was going to speak until that day. Uh, you know, Robert and I had, I'll get to the, the, the audition, but Robert and I had a, you know, we didn't really see each other. I mean, he lived in New York. He'd fly to Atlanta to shoot. I lived in LA and I'd fly to Atlanta to shoot. We could never be there at the same time. We really only had access to like one studio then. We only had, you couldn't, we, now we can have two shoots going on at the same time, but we didn't then. So I'd see him like once a year when we had the festival for a couple of years, we had a, a inexplicable company retreat. Um, which was, you know, I mean, just, I I guess we did some talking, but I mean, it's not like, it's always a strange network. It's not like we don't handle change very well, TCM. Like, you know, uh, um, so, you know, things take forever. Like if, you know, Gilbert, if you had some great idea about something to do with TCM and we loved it, like, by 2026, it might get on the air. <laughs> you know, it's like we're <laughs> a very deliberately paced network. It's Start not a lot pitching of, now, Gil. Right. There's not, <laughs> not a lot of breaking news happening at uh, TCM. But, so we'd, yeah, but I really wouldn't see him very much, so I didn't know him very well. Um, but I had this, you know, uh, these enormous shoes to fill even when he was still there because there's this, you know, standard set. He invented this job. I don't have this job without Robert. He didn't hire Mm -hmm. me, but he's what he's, he, you know, I get it. AMC was doing it, but Robert made it a thing, you know, this idea of talking for two minutes before the movie starts. Uh, And and, uh, it worked Um, anyway.
0: And not only uh, did we have him on the show and he was one of those guests. You just, your job is to click the microphone on. Yeah. Plug and play. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's were. great.
1: Good talker. He, he, he and had, also
0: he he invited me on. I, I was a guest of his show where yeah, we presented. I, for- I know you
2: I, I saw it when it happened. I had to look up what movies you did. But you did the you did I I won't even know you did the swimmer, you yes. did the conversation, you did uh, uh you did Freaks. Hey, and, Ben did and, his and homework. And you did uh oh for the love of God, you did uh, Steinbeck of Mice and Men, right?
0: Unbelievable!
1: Very yes. good, Ben. Very
0: Unbelievable.
2: Good. Um,
1: you're the you're the first guest who's ever prepared anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing.
2: Um, uh, well, uh, you've been uh, Gilbert. You have been a a, a, a figure, uh, an important peripheral figure uh, in my life. Um, uh, I, you know, my, my one of my two or three closest friends of the world and his brother were at the Friars Club with his dad that night your night in 2001. Uh, and they, they talked about it before I, the idea that I could ever watch it again. I mean, and they were like, it was the funniest experience that I've ever, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating one bit. They said it was a transcendent experience for them. Never laughed that hard, never needed to laugh that hard. Thought it was the greatest thing they had ever seen. Um, and, uh, you know, and then and you know, and on Howard, I just like it was like I it was like man, this guy is cool, right? And then so anyway, so it's a anyway, it was a big thrill for me to be uh, 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 to be uh, to be talking to you.
0: Yeah, that was right after September 11th, and I did the Aristocrats, <laughs> this, and this, then, yeah, the place blew up. It was uh... yeah, yeah. They said they were
2: cr- like crying. They people it was they were uh, my friend Michael Shore and his dad there in the they're crying. That I couldn't I couldn't believe what was happening. And it what was it, like three weeks after something like that? Yeah. Like October 1st very or something. Shortly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was well done. It was well done. Thank um, you. Uh, yeah. So Robert was a uh, um, anyway, it was an institution. But for my audition, you know, like I I auditioned for, I know, you know, you've talked about this with some of your guests uh, before about this auditioning process and how unbelievably horrible it is. It's just, and I sucked at it. I mean, everybody's bad, but I'm really bad, and I'm not an actor. So this was like game show hosts, a couple of little acting gigs, but I didn't even really prepare enough. And the game show host stuff, like you had, it was always like you, they wanted you to tell the rules of the show, and the rules of the show, they were impossible. The shows, the games, would never get you know. Welcome to you know what's. What's on my foot? Here's how we play. Three contestants, but you'll switch after round 1. You have to decide what's on Leslie's foot, but then Leslie will have a chance to come back and then say what's on your foot. That's worth 2 points. Are we clear so far? Then everybody comes together and they make a bet. And you're like, you got to read this in sitting in an audition room. <laughs> no. It's baffling. It's always baffling there's rules that no one could possibly follow and you're like and they got cue cards which are you know i get it this is a podcast but like so you're taking your eyes from camera and you're darting them just a little bit left right to catch what the and it always sucked it was terrible i must have not gotten 100 jobs easily 110 i was like oh and 110 it got so bad that i tried to unjinx it where i decided i would tell everyone every audition as if i was about to get the job Right. As soon as I'd go to it, I got an audition today. Here's what uh, it is. I'll probably
1: Un-jinx it. I like that. Yeah,
2: it, uh, Oddly enough, didn't work. So um, I was a finalist to host the daytime version of the weakest link. Um, so I got, I signed that contract that they make you sign first before they hire you. Right. And they're like, so in case they do hire you, they don't have to pay you very much. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so it was like a seven year contract to host the weakest link. Obviously, I didn't get it. Um but it was like four guys and they all like had, I had a goatee then they all had glasses and a goatee and, and uh, they're all white guys. They it, like, obviously, I mean, it was just, you go in there and you know, if you're rejected, it's you, right. They're not going, they're not looking for a different type. They're looking for exactly your type, but not you. Um, so I learned how to say, I thought I'd had my spin would be why I'm so bad at this. So I waste and the whole night before learning how to and the line from the British show, and I guess it was a big hit here too, from Ann Robinson, the host, she would say, You are the weakest link, goodbye. Right. When somebody got knocked out. I off remember, the show. yeah. And so I learned how to say goodbye in like a dozen languages. You know. So I'd be like the, you know, you are the weakest link. Dos Right. <laughs> you are the weakest link. Or even energy, right? And so I get I get my turn. And it's a full 30, most of these auditions, they're horrible. You know, it's like you come in for a minute, you read, it's a sterile white room, there's a casting director there, there's nobody else, it's empty, there's no reaction, you try to be funny, you try to be personal, right, nothing, they don't laugh, they mispronounce your name, you just, you feel, if you don't, it's very easy to feel worthless, right, and uh, so, uh, but here, this was on the set, right? Full, lights, everything. It's a real, it's like a run-through. It's a, and so I get there, you know, and the guy's got to be thrown off. I insult him the way they want to insult him. And I'm like, you are the weakest link. Adios. Right Arivaderci. arrivederci. And you insta- instantly, you're like, uh, cut, hold on, hold hold. What'd you say? I was like, oh, I, I said uh, uh, arrivederci. Because, uh, yeah, I wanted to say it in, like, different languages. <laughs> they held for a second. They're like, yeah, yeah, just say goodbye that's our thing. Yeah. Just say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. So stupid. <laughs> like It's the catchphrase. You know, it's uh, like, it's like you go into host jeopardy. You're like, what if we didn't answer as a question? That's Just think funny. About it. Right. Um, and, uh, so anyway, so I got the TCM audition and, um, it was a cool, it was, a, it not it was something we didn't have. It was, uh, the idea was, uh, that on weekends where I was the host, Robert did the week did every night primetime, every night, and I would do, come Saturday and Sunday during the day. And then I'd, I'd come in and I'd talk to either a filmmaker who was still alive or a star or their kids. Um, and it would just be like, the, like a guest program, essentially like what you did, but I would always be a guest. It wouldn't be a straight intro. And so I went in there and to audition and they had like 10 of us and they were, they'd mix and match us. So you had more time and you could improvise. And if you, and I watched, they wanted us to talk about the Magnificent Seven and the Seven Samurai. So, you know, whatever. I watched them the night before. I mean, I'd seen them, but I watched them fresh and and I uh and then they kept they'd be like, Okay, this time, Ben, you're you're the host and here's the expert, and then they'd switch it up and then they'd have me I then I went with every group. They kept bringing me in, Ben and I was like, ah, oh, they like me. So that led to the second audition where it's just in a hotel room and they'd given up on that idea because it's too hard to book. And they're like, Yeah, you're just gonna read intros like Robert does. And it was uh um It was an intro for the bishop's wife Mm -hmm. in the prompter. They'd given it to me. They're like, you can make any changes you want, put it in your voice, but I was terrified. I changed nothing, right? And I read it in a teleprompter. i had been a news anchor. I could read a teleprompter. I'm good at reading aloud, right? um, Didn't really ever strike me as a skill, but, uh, and and I read it and I finished and the guy goes, no, this is not your first uh, barbecue. No, not your first rodeo. And I was like, Okay, no, uh, yeah, I've read aloud lots of times. <laughs> um, I love to read. Uh, and then I go home, I don't hear anything. But the night that I went home, I, uh, I, uh, I said to my girlfriend at the time, we're going to turn on TCM. And if Mankiewicz had anything to do with this movie, um, after the second audition I did this, after Mankiewicz had anything at all to do with this movie, I'll get it. I'm not going to be superstitious if it's not a Mankiewicz movie, which it probably isn't, I still might get it, but if I, is a Mankiewicz, it's it. It's over and this job is mine. And my 19 months of wandering unemployed through Los Angeles will be over, uh, living on unemployment, right. Uh, and living on nothing at that point. little well, part-time gigs, best damn sports show, stuff like that. Uh, I made like $15,000 in the first two years in LA, something like that combined 19,000 in two years. And, uh, and I come home. We turn on TV, and it's the Barefoot contestant uh, written H- and directed H- by Joe:
1: H- H- There you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I love like, wow. that.
2: He had something to do with this. He wrote it and he directed it. I and love then, that story. Then a few months later, I got the gig. It was nice. Best thing yeah. of all the dumb things I auditioned for. This was the only. This was the least dumb one.
1: Uh, I, by I the I way, Gil, Gilbert was the original host of What's on Your Foot on the Dumont Network. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: What's that you, on your? Hey, foot? Hey, I don't know if hey, you yeah. remember hey. that. They fired me. They said I was too Jewish.
1: <laughs> Betty Furness was his sidekick.
0: Now, uh, out, of, out of all the people either you've met at your home or have interviewed, uh, who was uh, who are the ones that you looked at and went, oh, my God, am I really uh, sitting next to this person? It, it happens
2: a, a lot, Um I mean, it still does. I mean, like, Mel Brooks and I are uh, friendly now. Uh, um, uh, I mean, he'd probably say, like, don't be an ass. We're friends. But it still feels weird, right? Um, But I still, every time I talk to Mel, I'm like, I can't believe I'm talking to Mel Brooks. I can't believe I'm just listening to Mel Brooks tell this story. So that still happens. Um, But, like, the people who got to me hard in that moment where it was this combination of, of nerves and I can't believe it and they're going to expose me for the fraud that I am. Right. Which I guess is, I don't know. I mean, I have that a lot. Um, but, um, but I think a lot of people have that feeling, um, were, uh, uh, Max von Cito. Wow. I like, just knew that von Cito was going to see right through me. Right. Because he's so serious and, you know, I mean, he stared down death for crying out loud. He's not going to be this <laughs> right. silly little D.C. Jew is not going to. <laughs> he's not going to have what I'm. And all I want to talk about is three days of the condor. You know, oh, I love that one. Right. You know, yeah. for, for that day. Um, and uh, so um, and of course, he's lovely and disarming and funny and kind. And so but I was super nervous for him. I was nervous for Sophia Loren for obvious reasons. She's just the, whatever the wattage that stars have, right. Where you're like, she has as much as you can have. Right. I mean, she just has it. And the, uh, the green room when she was there was everybody made an excuse to be in the green room, but nobody went near her. So they all crowded in there, but then there was this constant 15 foot circle around her. She in fact went to a sort of, little off air and sat down by herself you know and then I was like I think I, I'm about to interview I should probably go in but anyway so that was and she was all she wrote on her hand it was so great so she'd done an interview there Robert got sick that year he he was going to do a long form interview with her and she ended up doing an interview with her um uh with her son Eduardo Ponti, who had, uh, was is a director also and a lovely guy and, uh, but I did this, that was for a show that we produced, but I did a long interview with her before marriage Italian style. And, uh, and she, I guess, before we went out on stage, Eduardo says her English is not great. Right. And maybe it's cause she stopped making English movies regularly and she lives in Europe and so she doesn't use it as much, but she, um, so he tells her to say to the crowd at the Egyptian Theater in LA, the closing night of the festival, packed house, obviously to see this wonderful movie. It's a really great picture. It's um, a good movie, yeah. Funniest, yep. funny. I mean, it's the definition of a comedy and a drama put together, which is my point. And he says to her, "Call it a dramedy. That's what it is. Call it a dramedy. That's what the kids say now, a dramedy." And she's wearing this like silk white pantsuit. And I, I followed her out on stage, and I remember thinking, I, don't, I you know, like I, I'm like sort of checking her out in this white pantsuit. I'm like, Sophia Loren, she's 82. What are you doing? Like, stop, <laughs> stop being an ass, man. And uh, and uh, um, and I do the interview, and she's lovely, and she's so smart and thoughtful. And then and she, and then, she had taken a sharpie. And she had written on her hand in, with this beautiful, you know I, don't know, I don't know anything about clothes, but that was, a, whatever she was wearing cost some money. And she wrote dramedy in Sharpie on her hand and she holds it up and she says, you know, hey, my son told me to call it a, she holds it up to the crowd. She was a hey, a dramedy. And it's all sloppily written all over her hand. And I was like, I now, so that's disarming, right? Then as soon as she does that on I relax, right? That, that helped. And Jerry Lewis also was a because I knew that he, you know, didn't suffer fools. We've all probably, if you're interested, many of you guys have probably seen that interview. He, you know, Jerry oh, yes. can can, yes. can destroy an interviewer. I mean Jerry Lewis was kind of an ass. Um and uh But you were good with him. I he was great. I, I guess I later learned that Jerry Jerry didn't like Robert and Robert didn't like Jerry. So I had this huge edge because I wasn't
1: <laughs> Oh long. interesting. Right. And he
2: loves Joe Mankiewicz. He only lo- wanted to talk about Joe Mankiewicz movies. Um and w- so I did Jerry a couple times and he was friends with Ileana Douglas, who's helped us out, who's a friend of mine. Oh, we too, lo- we love Ileana. Yeah, Ileana's the best. And she, so yeah, she's been here. So she uh anyway, so it was great. He was good and he was funny and he was charming and he was nice to me, and he didn't you know he didn't he didn't he didn't expose me. And and we did a thing we so we did a couple things together. Did one for his 90th birthday or his 89th birthday, maybe. Um and uh, not long before he died. And then, you know, I'm, I'm home and I get a call from this 702 Vegas number. And I answer the phone, I'm like, hello? Um, oh no, sorry, I, answer, I, I don't pick it up, right. And it's, uh, I, I guess a message, and it's, uh, uh, you know, Ben, is Jerry Lewis. I enjoyed the interview so much. Uh, give me a call, uh, uh, let's uh, chat, let's catch up. When you get in, call me. This job is so good, right? <laughs> this job is so good, <laughs> Jerry Lewis called me. just wants to bullshit right so i pick up a phone i call back and hello it's not he, there's no wait for mr lewis mr lewis answers the phone i go hey uh, it's jerry he goes, yeah he goes hey it's ben mankowitz i got your message oh terrific ben terrific ben uh thanks for calling <laughs> that was it
3: that was it that was our conversation <laughs> That's
2: great. Uh, yeah, oh, good. Yeah, I just want to call you back. Yeah. Oh, great. Thanks for calling, back I talk. know.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I know. In answer to Gilbert's question, doing a little research on you, a lot of research on you, that Ernest Borgnine was somebody who who
2: who, who touched you. Uh, yeah, he was great. Yeah, but, er- er- but... Ernie was great. He he, uh, he wrote me a really nice note afterwards, and he did. He was one of the first big interviews I did, and mm-hmm. you know, in the first year or two that they started, you know, they didn't give me anything for a long time at TCM. Um. They gave me a political thing in 2004 where we interviewed political, we interviewed two Republicans, two Democrats about movies that influenced them. And we got like a super good group of people, by the way. We got Joe Biden and uh, 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 John McCain who were both great. And then Orrin Hatch from Utah. And then we got John Edwards, which was less great um as it turned out um but uh but then nice like lineup though it, it was a good lineup at, at yeah. the time and john edwards is a good story i won't i won't waste it but like it, john edwards demonstrated how much of a fraud he was in that conversation oh interesting um, um so but borg nine later at, so i did this a couple things with him uh, i ended up doing four or five different events with him but after the first one it really had, i thought it went well and then like two days later i just get this letter and he says you know ben i've done a lot of interviews none of them go that well um, it was such a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we can spend time together. It was a letter, you know, so I had that on my refrigerator, and I of course have lost it. But it was that that gave it gave me a significant boost of uh, of confidence that I could you know that's nice that, that I could navigate this. He yeah, was he was a he was fun. a loved guy, yeah, everybody, by, by, everybody by all liked accounts. Him. Yeah, yeah, everybody liked everybody, but I mean so much like even Marie Saint, she's just you know she's awesome. Some believe Tippy Hedren was has has been great. Angie, there's nobody nobody more fun than Angie Dickinson. Nobody more fun than Angie Dickinson. It's I bet. So, yeah, and we we do an event in Austin before we show Rio Bravo a movie she made with John Wayne for Howard Hawks and and, uh, and this great old theater in Austin and the crowd's packed and she's just so good she's telling these Frank Sinatra stories and you know and then she pretends for a while that you know you know like she's better you asking me if I was intimate with Frank Sinatra because I don't know that that's appropriate. And I'm them, like, are you kidding me? Really? <laughs> right. Yeah. And she goes, I guess if you really want to know, I don't think they care. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, I think they care. And she's like, do you <laughs> care? And they're like, <laughs> right. You know, it's well, it's, playing um, your- <laughs> She's just playing around. And then, and then finally, so then they take questions. I don't like taking questions from the audience cause it can go wrong. Right. And, uh, and people frequently are like, you know, my grandfather's brother lived on the same street. It's a very long set so this guy gets up and he he not only asks a question, he comes to the front of the stage and he's got a um like a policewoman um uh, uh poster that he wants Angie to sign, clearly. Um, and he is reminiscent of the comic book guy in The Simpsons. Right. And <laughs> we, to get, me, we my, get it. We that's get my first kind of... <laughs> impression of him. That right. t-shirt doesn't it doesn't come all the way down. Um and uh and he starts talking about how much he loves Angie, and it's just, he's droning, it's monotonous, and, and I'm trying to keep it lively, and then it and then he says, you know, because every night I'd turn out the lights with your poster above my head, and I would think about you, and right, and I'm like, oh, no, right, you know, I can't have this, is turn of classic movies, man, this is a, you know, we don't have this kind of audience, man, Um and uh, and so and i'm like okay i got it we got it. got it i got it i got it thank you thank you thank you Thank you. and angie i reach forward with my hand to say stop to him and i it's the hand that's closer to angie and she reaches out and knocks my hand down and comes out of her chair like on a knee in front of the chair closer to him and she goes go on
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious yeah so good perfect Perfect.
2: So good, good. yeah.
0: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor.
1: What what about Tony Curtis or Mickey Rooney? And please tell us there's a story there in either one of them.
0: Uh, Tony Curtis, uh, uh, mostly what I
2: remember from Tony Curtis is him telling me what I had been told he already thought, but I asked him about it. So that uh, no uh, self-respecting man uh, wearing a collared shirt ever has fewer than two buttons undone and you really should have three but at a minimum two so if you only have one you're a dork and nobody wants That's to great. sleep with you that was essentially like, if you, if you want to have any success in life it's a minimum of two and it should probably be three uh, uh tony i did early on too i was super nervous some event in in uh, long island we drove out from long island to the city together um and uh, he was very nostalgic about growing up in New York. That's really what he wanted to talk yeah. about uh, on the ride. But, um, but the most, all I can remember, the big takeaway we screened, I think some like it not, was, uh, uh, was him talking about the shirts. Um, and then, uh, so M- Mickey Rooney. So we, it's like, again, early I things, I think it was, no, it was the first big interview that I had at the festival. Ernie, Ernie's thing was the next year on uh, the road to the festival. We did events with him all over the country, so that's what. But in like our first festival is 2010, and they gave me um, Mickey Rooney. It might have been 2011. They might have given me nothing the first year. I can't remember. So, and it's Mickey Rooney, and uh, and it's at the again. It's also the Egyptian Theater, and we're screening one of his uh, uh, Judy Garland movies, right? Um, Babes in Arms, something like that, and. And so the publicist who I was there says, Mickey wants to, you know, I'm like, hey, Mickey, great to meet you. He says, hey, great to meet you. He has no idea who I am, but um, it's just fine. You know, I'm the other guy. I'm not Robert, right? And I always feel like early on, people are like, oh, oh, so it's going to be you who interviews me. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I see where I stand, um, right? And, uh, um, and so uh, I'm like, you know, it's really great to be here. And he's like, yeah, I just want to make it clear, he says. Uh, I don't want to talk about Judy. And you're like. Well, all right. You know, we're screening. It's you and Judy up on the screen. (laughs) The whole, the whole point. I go, is there some? You know, my first thought is, oh my god, did you guys have a fight, (laughs) right? Oh
0: God,
2: she's been dead forty years at this point, right? And uh, I'm like, is everything okay? Is she mad at you? You know, um, and 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 I'm like, I'm like, well, why? He goes, I don't want to get into all that stuff about Judy. All that stuff. It's all anybody wants to talk about. And so then I go, no, no. Uh, all these people want to talk about this is Turner classic movies. Like, all they want to talk about is how much you guys liked each other and how much fun you guys had making this movie. That's really all I'm going to ask you about. Like that's it. Right. Um, and he's like, Oh really? I mean, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all like, like you love Judy. Right. And he's like, yeah, I go, that's what I want to talk about. How much you love Judy. I don't care about any of the things that happened at the end of her life. That's not good Good for you. Not what this is about. Right. And uh, he's like, okay, so he, so he's willing to do it. And he does talk about it a little bit, but Mickey liked to tell stories that were on their face untrue. Like they just couldn't have done. like they, you know, he's like, I was three years old in Kansas city and I wanted to leave home. And I, you know, my mom and I were stuck and we had no money and we were trying to do these, you know, we do these shows and we were, father wasn't there. Whatever his story was. I can't quite remember. Right. Uh, Joe, Yule, right. And he says, I, uh, and every night, my mom and I would be sitting there, and he's three in his version of the story, you know.
3: And, and
2: we'd hear the train on the outskirts of town, and we knew it was going somewhere. And I'd say, "Ma, where's that train going?" And she'd say, "That's going to our future. One day, we'll be on that train." And I'd say, "Really, Ma? Will you?" And you're like, "All right, this is not. This did not happen. It's not the thing that." That's not a conversation that a child has with his mom. It's just it oh, that's it great. right, right? But I'm, but I'm like, all right. So I want to get him. And then he was, you know, he was very into uh, veterans and supporting veterans. You know, he 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 really uh, argued his way into service in World War II uh, because he kept getting rejected on legitimate health grounds. And then and the studio tried to keep him out because he was this gigantic moneymaker for MGM, and they had no interest in him uh, going overseas and he kept reapplying and then eventually they worked out some deal and he served but he didn't fight and i got the feeling that he that that uh that he had shame. You oh, know, interesting. I don't I don't know this to be uh, uh true, but i know he was incredibly and he did all he could. I mean, he has he could hold his head up high. He he fought to get in. Um and so but he so he supported these uh veterans groups, which was which was great. Um but he um but he also got very religious, which is also great except when you start to proselytize in front of an audience that wants to hear a Judy Garland story. And, and then, and it feels like, and my job as Gilbert, as you know, you're, if you're doing with somebody, you want them to engage the crowd. You want them, you want the people who've come in LA who've, you know, driven across town, took three and a half hours to see whoever you got, right. To see Mickey Rooney feel like they got something right. They learned something that made them feel connected to him. And this was not it. and so he starts talking about Jesus and he stands up and, uh, and I'm like, and I have no experience with this in front of a crowd like this. And I'm like, Aah! right. You know, like, and, uh, um, and at one point so it's it, it, in my head, he'd been talking for 60 seconds. He would probably been talking for four, right. But he's standing up and he was 90 then. And you could tell the audience, like they need me to help him. Right. We don't want to, the, the, my job is to, have my job is to get him two standing ovations right and and it's pretty easy to get mickey rooney two standing ovations right i'm not sure anybody is more popular with tcm audiences than mickey rooney when he walked out on stage done up there right um so so then he looks at me and i'm like trying to think it's trying to be, come on be smart think of something and he god bless him he says to me uh you know jesus don't you ben right uh, <laughs> And I said, yeah, no, 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 we, uh, we, uh, we used to play against each other in the Jewish community center basketball leagues. Right. Right. And he looks at me and the crowd laughs a little bit. And he looks at me and he goes, I knew you were okay. And he slaps my leg and he goes, I'm sorry. I'm totally monopolizing your interview. What do you want to talk? about?" Just like that. Nice. He sat down and they talked to these stories and I was like, okay, all right, all right. Okay. This was good. Thank God. Thank God, because it really felt like I was going to, you know, I would rather them get mad at me. Uh, I had a very famous director uh, shut down on me on stage. But that to me is is um, that was easier because then I know I I knew I just screwed up. I asked a Mm -hmm. dumb question, but but I didn't want to I was worried Mickey was going to embarrass himself. Right. Yeah. That that they would. um, But he came through and then he came on the cruise later and he was great. He was just—he was great, and he was fun, and he was feisty, and you know. Uh, and they just—even guys—even if they're a little irritable beforehand, man, when they get on the stage, we've I mean, had some people who've been a little challenging. Not many, very few, overwhelmingly great, but a couple difficult before we start, man. And then those lights come on, and they, and they act like stars.
1: And you it, and dodged just, a bullet with the Mick.
2: Totally dodged a bullet with the Mick. It could have gone. It could have gone uh, in a number of. Uh, could have gone in a number of bad directions. Yeah.
1: Let me ask you one question from a listener, Ben. As oh, yeah. we as we wind down, our friend Eric Ryan, what does Ben think the future holds for in-person communal movie theater experiences? Remember them?
2: Yeah, I mean you don't know want. I mean these. I don't know. I, I God bless him. Thank you for asking. I don't know, man. I don't know anything. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. not. I, I don't. I can't predict. I, I think that there will be a over. Some theaters are going to close down, I guess, right? But I mean, I think we're going to crave. The things that we haven't had that's what we crave in life right um
1: to see a comedy with an you know, what audience do, what do
2: you covet right when yeah. silence of the lamb said you you know you uh so you know you covet what you can see right and, and 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 in that sense i feel like we can see what we had right like and so we just want these things so i don't know i think we're going to go back to theaters um you I know hope maybe so. they won't be as full maybe there'll be a little more room for a bit but you know i mean once we get to, you know, we start hitting 40, 50% vaccinated and we get within sight of what we're imagining herd immunity to be, I think people are going to, I mean, you know, I go to, I love to gamble. I'm, I'm pretty confident that Vegas is going to come back. And if, you know, and so I think movie theaters will come back. I I think that we're going to have to reimagine the way we see movies, obviously, you know, and it's going to be much more commonplace to see a big movie, uh, at home, but, uh, but theaters aren't going to, aren't going to aren't going to go away. If they're going to make $300 million Marvel movies, they're going to have theaters to put them in, and those theaters are going to want to show something when uh, that, those movies aren't available. So,
1: that's a good point. That's a good point. What What is uh, what is the, the best part of the job? What's the best part of the gig? And I heard you say, too, I found this interesting, that when you're on a cruise, when you're at a festival... There's there's another member of the MacWix family.
2: Hey Bunk, Bob, Bobby, Bunky, it's okay. It's another dog. It's another dog. It's okay, guys. Sorry about that. Bunky. God he's so dumb. He's so dumb. I have one great dog and one other dog. Oh, um, I saw
1: that in your TCM bio. It's totally true. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that on the at the festivals and on the cruises that you're so busy, uh, you know, introducing things and and schmoozing and, and doing all the things you have to do that you hardly get to see the films.
2: Oh, I I've seen Airplane. I saw Airplane. That's the one movie I've seen. I saw uh, and I saw one nitrate noir. and I don't even remember which one it was, uh-huh. uh, which was awesome because um, it was at midnight. Right. But the um, other than that, the only movie I've seen start to finish, I went to see Citizen Kane the like early year because I had time and I wasn't doing as much the first couple of years of the festival. And I swear to God, I mean, I slept hard. Like, I mean, I hadn't been I'd had been up, It had been tense. I'd been and then just Whatever. I've seen it. I know how it works. The theater's dark. I was out. Must have slept 40 straight minutes. Longest I've ever slept in a movie. Um and then I saw Airplane in its entirety. We screened it late at night at the uh, Chinese Theater in LA. Um, and we, you know, we had Robert Hayes and we had one of the Zucker brothers and Jim mm-hmm. Abrams. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great. And the theater's packed midnight screening of Airplane on, I guess, probably the 30th anniversary or something, 40th anniversary. And it was hilarious. It was such, so great. That was fun. Um, and, again, uh, but, again, the importance of
1: seeing a comedy with an audience. Oh, yeah, a comedy yeah. with an
2: audience. And, yeah. and it was just it was so, I mean, it still it was funny then. It's funny now. And uh, uh, that was great. But I think that's it. I'm, and I don't think I've, I'm not sure I've ever seen a movie on the cruise, you know. Um, but it's great. I love, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I like the, I like schmoo- schmoozing with the audience. I mean, they, you know, they, they're, they love movies, man. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just—it's audience of people who love classic movies. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, it's—it's it's, I mean, it's, it's like guys like you guys. Right? Well, you know, and, yeah.
1: that's us. We 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 shared in your intro that you and Gilbert share a love of Ace in the Hole, but you seem to be fond of a lot of movies about journalism.
2: Oh, I love like Face go- like I- in
1: the Crowd and. Yeah, and, and, and,
2: you know, and, and uh, and Chayefsky's uh,
1: the, network and
2: all the president's men and network. All the president's and, yeah, men is great. Uh, and Spotlight, you know, uh, yeah, I what? mean, good journalism. Uh, uh, Deadline USA with, oh, it's a good one. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. as, that's as good as it gets. Yeah, I mean, the journal, you know, journalism at its best, man. It's like, you know, we were talking about corporate power. Like, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. That's why corporate ownership of all media is, uh, dangerous, right? Because the idea is that they got to, you know, they're not supposed to just stand up to politicians. They're supposed to stand up to where the power is. And the power is always with the money. Um, and uh, so, uh, anyway, I, I, you know, that's the speech Ned Beatty gives in Network. Yes. The best part of Network is the speech Ned Beatty gives where he's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is, you know, essentially we're run by an oil company. Um, uh, something like that. Anyway, so uh, so I love good journalism movies. But Ace in the Hall is good for, a, a you know, Oh, that reminds me, let me just tell a quick Kirk Douglas story. So, because that's, at, it happened at the festival, post Kirk Douglas's stroke, many years after. So it was like, I don't know, 2012 or something like that. And he's at the festival. He, you know, he's not going to be on stage long. You can ask him like two questions and he's going to get thunderous applause and and get out. And, you know, he's, his mind worked great. He just couldn't get the words out perfectly. So Kirk Douglas up there and in but before we, before I introduce him and bring him out, I'm backstage in this makeshift green room at the Chinese Theater, and he, with his finger, he's gets come over, come over here. I sit down close to him, and he goes, you're related to Joe Mankiewicz, right? And I'm like, yeah, he's my he's my uncle, my great uncle. He goes, I made a, made a movie with your uncle, and he made uh, Letter to Three Wives, and I think yep. that's what he's talking about, right? A good I one. Know, I, I know Letter to Three Wives. And Joe won best directing and best writing for that, um, and. Uh, I mean, And and I go, yeah, yeah, Letter to Three Eyes. He goes, no, I made a Western. Oh, there was a crooked man. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Then You got it exactly. There was Good a crooked one. man. Um, and he goes, yeah. Uh, and I go, yeah. And he goes, you know what I learned from that movie? <laughs> I'm coming in really close to make sure I can hear him. I go, no, what? He goes, I learned your uncle shouldn't make a Western. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I like that picture. Yeah, you know, right. it might right, be the I like, I like a,
2: Kirk Douglas's story about it. About it. Uh, that's a good <laughs> the, story. Yeah, it was good.
1: Uh, it was good. That, that's a good story. Why do you like? Lo- why do you love Ace in the Hole so much?
2: I uh, probably the same reasons uh, Gilbert does. It's uh, um, you know, it, I mean, it's about uh, avarice, greed, but not money, right? It's about this thirst for success and fame and getting back on top and being uh, blinded by it. Um, uh, to the extent that you're willing to risk somebody else's life to get there to be to get so cynical about what's important uh, that you have no idea that you've lost touch with reality and the also i mean I love journalists and I love journalists doing their job, but also what a what an unethical journalist can do how mm-hmm. that story can be manipulated to suit them and it's just you know i mean it's it's a great noir. Um, and a great journalism movie, and you know, and it and that Douglas intensity, which, you know, you know, could be a little too much in some roles. Uh, I mean, I'm a big Kirk Douglas fan, but and when he's at his best, he's great. But that it works there because this guy is just living, breathing ambition and cynicism. So the Douglas sort of over the topness, uh, he is I perfect. Works well. He's perfect yeah, works for perfect. that part.
0: Yeah, and the movie's not outdated at all. Oh, no, no. It, it, it. I mean, it's.
2: I mean, it, you, you, you could update it and, and uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, put some, t- uh, put Twitter or Instagram in it and change sort of the nature of the story and have more TV cameras there. It would still work. Everything about that movie could work. They, they tried
1: tonight. to do a remake a few years ago with, with. Uh, remember this, Gilbert, with Dustin Hoffman and Travolta, called Mad City. Ah, uh, yes. It's a Costa Gavras movie, Ben. Yeah. It's a little bit. It's a little bit of a remake of Ace in the Hole.
2: I don't know it. it yeah. It, um,
1: I mean, uh, uh, you know, you remake Billy Wilder at your own at your own peril, right? But it's, uh, but it's, you know,
2: it's. You it's, know what Billy Wilder movie I just saw that I liked that I didn't? I mean, I guess I'd, I, don't even maybe I hadn't seen it, but I mean, uh, the his version of the front page with the Mathau and yeah, Roman, it's fun. Yeah, it's totally fun. Like I feel like I'm disparaging about it on the air. Like I have to stop doing that. It was excellent. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, they're 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 great together. They're great, and it's it's good enough. It's totally good enough.
1: Because your friend Peter Bogdanovich is such a good mimic, and we had him on here and he did his Walter Brennan for us and his Hitch and his Jimmy Stewart. And because you're such a Gilbert fan, we're going to favor you. Gilbert, you should favor Ben with a little bit of your Peter Lorre because Ben is Ben is very fond of Casablanca.
0: <laughs> who isn't? No, it's you who ruined it. You, it's your stupid attempt to buy it have found out how valuable it was. No wonder he had such an easy time getting it. You idiot! You blooded fathead! <laughs> oh, it's so good.
2: That's so good. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you for... Uh... Oh, man. That is... That is... He does Sydney Green Street, too. Um... <laughs> We got a night of them. I just wrote it I just wrote reworked those scripts uh, we have a night of uh of of, of uh, of, uh Laurie and Green Street four movies or five movies coming up in i and oh. in in, in a, it has to be in March at the end of March there, wow. there was
0: one I think the ticket that had to do with them having a sharing a lottery ticket
2: yes that's right with uh with the girl who's the and girl. there was mask of Demetrius we have that we have the mask of Demetrius. that's one of them they did, they did nine, they did eight in five years, I think, total, and then a ninth if you count Hollywood Canteen, where they sort of spoof, uh, where they sort of spoof each other, and I just saw Laurie, though, again, a movie I hadn't seen him forever, in forever, in Arsenic and Old Lace, where he's so, you know, with Cary Grant, where he's also just, sense. I mean, of course, he's always, he's always sensational, and Eddie Muller, the noir guy, uh, and I just did a thing on MacGuffins uh, and we included the Maltese Falcon. Oh,
1: when is that going to be on?
2: Uh, it's already been on once and it's, oh, okay. uh, well, it's, in, yeah, for you guys, I think it, it was in March. So yeah. Okay. I mean, it'll be this month.
0: Um, and, and with Mal Maltese Falcon, it's, um, <clears throat> you are a character, sir. I enjoy talking to a man who enjoys the talk.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's so good he was I mean, his first movie his first movie that is so um for uh, uh for Green Street it, the, my what I'd forgotten in Maltese Falcon is is uh, uh, when Laurie does that I can't do him like you know, you know you know that is twice that you've hit you know like you've uh, you've dared to slap me or you know and uh and like you just twice that you've put hands on me says so twice twice you've put hands on me and I'm Bogen, Bogen, I want Bogie to be like, "You drew a gun on me both times—once in my office, once in my house—and you're getting mad at me for putting hands on you." I'm like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, that's right. You took a gun out, and by the way, I took it from you both times. And then, he, you know, uh, when you get slapped, you'll you'll take it, you'll like it.
1: I, um, I love that you guys never repeat a movie intro on the net on the network. Yeah, that's
2: right. No, that's big. That's a big part of it. Big part of uh, what we do. That's right.
1: And I and I learned something. As much as I know about these movies, like hearing you talk about Casablanca, and you had that wonderful piece of history about how the studio reader read the script on December eighth,
2: nineteen forty 1941. Stephen Carnot, I've told that story. So I think I think that's his name. So Gilbert, this guy. So it's we get attacked by the Japanese on December seventh, nineteen forty one. And then, but this guy, uh, he goes into work on Monday, December eighth. Like I don't know. Somehow it just feels like I don't know. I'd take the day off. But he goes in, and he that's when he reads Casablanca. And so I don't know. Who knows? If he'd read it on Friday, would it have made an impression on him, right? But now here we are. War is imminent. You know, uh, Roosevelt later that day, I think, delivers his "We have nothing but a fear, but fear itself" speech. Uh, no, that was uh, sorry. That's uh, that's the Depression speech, which was uh, he gives his the date that will live in Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and then the, we declare war on Japan and then inexplicably the Nazis declare war on us a few days later, um, saving us the trouble. Um, and, uh, you know, but, like, if he'd read, the, if he'd read that on Thursday, it was, on, it was in his desk, it was at his desk already, then maybe he doesn't have the same reaction to it. Uh, it probably would have found its way to Hal Wallace anyway because he knew that it was out there. But nonetheless, I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, worth, it's worth mentioning always that yeah. this guy read it on December 8th. yeah
1: Fascinating history I had not heard before. And we want to listen. As we wind down, Ben, we want to tell our listeners that they can listen to The Plot Thickens, which is on the TCM website. And it's so good— and it's and it's nice to see you and Peter bonding through the process too.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I I love talking to Peter, man. I mean, this guy, you know, he's a link to classic movies. You know, yeah. I mean, he, he didn't make them, but he interviewed all of those guys, right? I mean, you know,
1: and there's the, bonus content too. Uh, after this, the, the, yeah. uh, him inter- interviewing and, Hawks and Hitchcock, yeah, it's Ford. great.
2: And Orson Welles lived with him for a year and a half, for crying yeah, out
1: loud. Yeah, he told you, us. You
2: know? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a very very good podcast.
2: Well, we um, have season. Well, season two's coming. Season two's coming. It's going to be good.
1: You you really get a sense of how how important Polly Platt was in his life. I mean, it's just so sentimental. I mean, then the two of them, you know, th- throwing all their belongings in that yellow car and driving cross country, and 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 Jerry Lewis takes pity on them because he t- their their car is so ugly. <laughs>
2: Yeah, totally. He's like, he you can't lends cut. them
1: a car. He gives yeah. them one of his Mustangs. <laughs> he's like, I don't
2: need it anymore. I got hey, Bobby. You gotta be quiet. Yeah, Lewis is like, hey, you, I can't keep having you over to the house if you're going to bring this car. Take one of mine for the yeah, love uh, of God. I'm yeah. Jerry Lewis.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a very very good show, and we look forward to uh, to seeing more of it. I want to thank some people too. Uh, our mutual friend Mario Cantone, who introduced us to you.
2: Oh yes, Mario. Also was,
1: one uh, of the funniest men in the world.
2: Yeah, Mario is uh, uh Mario's the best um, and uh, Mario is relentless um I, uh, I nobody can't imag- loves old movies more than he does no <sighs> oh, he he's the best he's the best and uh, um, again it's one of those great things where you just you, you get so far I wouldn't you know I wouldn't have met Mario Cantone without this job right
1: uh, yeah uh, that's so there's, there's another perk you wouldn't you wouldn't have met Ernest Borgnine.
2: I wouldn't have met Ernest Borgnine. yeah. I mean actually when you think about it, Mario's pretty low on that list. Um, um, <laughs> we're,
1: gonna, so, we're gonna tell him that.
2: Yeah. I mean I got to be I got to beat Faye Dunaway in this job who <laughs> gives a crap about Mario Cantone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't even a regular until, like, season six of we Sex love him. the City. So, oh,
1: yeah. we love him. I, and I have to say, too, on the uh, on the Bogdanovich podcast, you know, going back and watching, I went back and watched Last Picture Show and, and Paper Moon. Boy, they're perfect films. So, just yeah, they are. want to give Peter his due.
2: Yeah, and uh, that first movie of his, Targets, everybody should see Targets. Um, you know, for a first-time filmmaker, not a lot of money working for Roger Corman. Absolutely. Uh, it's good. It's really, uh, it's good.
1: We want to thank you for entertaining us and taking the time
2: to do this. I feel I don't know about being entertained, but thank you. It, was a, it's a, it is legitimately uh, an honor. So thanks, guys.
1: Gil, what do you think? Oh, uh, the, okay. the man, the man shares your appreciation of Jerry Lewis. Yes. We can add a guy to the list of people uh, Jerry Lewis was nice to.
0: Yes, course, I always, <laughs> I always say he's one of those uh, people. I. I've spoken to a few times and I can use the classic line. Well, he was always nice to me. <laughs> and now you
1: can say it, Ben. That's
2: right. He was always he was very 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 kind to me and I had the shortest complete phone call with Jerry Lewis than I had with anybody else.
0: <laughs> it had a beginning, it had a middle, it
2: had an end. It's a great story. That was it. Yeah.
0: That's hysterical.
1: I also want to thank our friend Christopher Bly who uh, who generously helped with research uh with ben so everybody watch the plot thickens uh there's another season coming are you still doing hollywood hideaways with uh with muller
2: yeah we'll do a couple we, we you know when it's, lockdown it's, ends we just got to get yeah when the lockdown ends yeah we got to uh you know that's the kind of thing where they're like hey we got uh, forty six thousand dollars left in the budget <laughs> can you guys go shoot for a day find something interesting that's what we gotta that's how we got that first couple ones done those are fun yeah, they were great. I love doing them. I mean, Eddie's become a great friend, and uh, and he's so smart. Uh, so uh, you know, I love talking to Eddie, and I love uh, and I love making fun of Noir Alley when I toss to it Saturday nights. So I generally write something that mocks Eddie and the movie when I say <laughs> coming up next Noir Alley, and like some of them are like I think really good lines, right? Some of them, you know, whatever they're they're like dad jokes, but some of them are solid, and uh, and no one ever 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 says anything at any. Oh, well, I did one where I said. I don't know, I, 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 we'd finished some movie and then, you know, I suggested which led to a sequel, and I go, uh, you know, and that's, and it was, you know, some nonsense, it would be like a, you know, it was like a, 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 seems like, it was like foul play, which would lead to seems like old times, and I'd be like, you know, it seems like old times, and that's the movie we have coming up next tonight on Noir Alley with Eddie Muller. And then I'm like, I'm just kidding, that's not what Eddie has on Noir Alley, I, I have no idea what he has, I've never seen Noir Alley, and I never will. Right. And, that's, and then
1: that's a nice and that
2: one gets nice like diss. hey man you got the fight you guys are having needs to happen uh off air you know we we you know people on twitter i must have gotten 50 things on twitter about the, the that it was rude of me to expose my my off-air hatred of of eddie each person i'm like hey man I'm kidding it's a it's a joke i love Eddie. i love noir
1: yeah, you guys are a nice team. What's the dog's name, by the way? The one that's
0: the one that's he knows feet. he's being spoken mm-hmm. about. It's Bob the Girl. Bob, Bob the
1: Girl. Bob the Girl. All right, we'll say goodbye to to Ben and to Bob the Girl. And and last thing is, I share your love for Soderbergh's uh, Out of Sight. Oh, terrific,
2: so terrific movie. So good. He's such a good filmmaker. I love terrific, Steve. terrific. He movie. loves TCM. Steven Soderbergh loves old movies.
0: He should. I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. With my co-host Frank Santo And today we've been talking to another great Mankowitz, Ben Mankowitz.
2: <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Nice. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> ben,
1: thanks so much for your time and for your for the laughs.
2: Thanks, guys. You were great. I appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks. Thank right.
3: you. These Bye. are the laws of my administration. Now one's allowed to smoke or tell a dirty joke and whistling is forbidden. We're not allowed to tell a dirty joke. If, if, if chewing gum is chewed, the chewer is pursued, and in the hooskow hidden. If we choose the chew will be pursued. If any form of pleasure is exhibited, report to me and it will be prohibited. I'll put my foot down, so shall it be. This is the land of the free the last man nearly ruined this place he didn't know what to do with it if you think this country's bad off now just wait till i get through with it the country's taxes must be fixed and i know what to do with it if you think you're paying too much now just wait till i get through with it I will not stand for anything that's crooked or unfair. I'm strictly on the up and up, so everyone beware. If anyone's caught taking graft and I don't get my share, we stand them up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. So oh, everyone beware it's crooked or unfair. No one any man should come between a husband and his bride, we find out which one she prefers by letting her decide. If she prefers the other man, the husband steps outside. We stand him up against the wall and pop, goes the weasel. You have an appointment at the House of Representatives. Good heavens, you can't go with your trousers up. I can, eh? Well, they never catch me any other way.